recap of where we've been. Uh, when we covered scripture alone, we were learning how God has recorded who he is and what he has done through his word. And through his word, he has explained the determination of the plan that people will come to salvation, that people will know about him. And the idea behind that was that the message and the power of God are found in scripture alone. And then the second week, last week, we covered grace alone. And the idea behind that was that mankind is sinful. And at least two ways to explain that, that man is sinful, is that man is unresponsive and man is unlovely. Man is unresponsive in that they're dead in their sins, so they don't come to approach God first, but rather he has to come to make us alive before we can approach him. And we're also not only unresponsive, but we're unlovely. The way we were thinking about that was like cockroaches. In the same way that uh, when you turn on a light and a cockroach is in your house, they run for the darkness. This is the way that sinners are. We run to the darkness and we do not like the light. And because of that, the response of God should be something like us when we seek cockroaches, which is to destroy them. But that is not God's response at all. In fact, it's actually his loving attitude towards sinners that brings us to life and realizes, brings us to a realization of the goodness of the gospel. And that is not only the only way that we're saved, but it is very much the way that we are saved. God displaying his attitude by bringing us to life and giving us loveliness. And the idea behind that is the only way we can be saved is through grace alone. And now today, what we're really doing is we're just jumping into the next one. And the way that you kind of get from grace alone to faith alone is in one of the verses we looked at last week, which is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God says that he loves the world in terms of an offer to the world of his son for salvation. But John 3.16 is very clear in explaining to us how it is that someone knows that God would love them. And we explained last week that God does love sinners before they're sinners. But the question is, how is it that I can know that I can experience this love of God? And he says in John 3.16, it is for those who believe. Faith alone is the doctrine of having to believe in God. The way to approach God for salvation is through believing in God. Now, before we approach the text that we'll be covering here, I need to kind of explain something, and it seems a little off track, but when we read the text, you'll realize why it's important. When we talk about the importance of being right with God, we call that salvation, being saved by God. That is kind of the largest term we can use for this sphere of being right with God. But the more you study scripture, you realize there's other terms in the process of salvation that you learn all of the ways that God has explained how he makes sinners right with him. And one of those terms, which is in the realm of salvation, the term we have to know today is the word justification. The word justification, the aspect of salvation that we are dealing with today is called justification. Now, this is very important to know because in a nutshell, what justification is explaining to us is that if we are going to be right with a holy and righteous God, then we must be considered or have legitimate reasons to call ourselves holy and righteous people. 
Only holy and righteous people can be right with a holy and righteous God. The word justification by itself means to be saved legitimately. For a good God to justly call us right with him. It means to be considered righteous, to be considered a person who has a legitimate reason to be in the presence of God for eternity. And I stress that justification means you have to be grounds to be considered justified because justified isn't necessarily something you experience. It's something that you are considered to be. Let me say that again. Justification isn't something you experience, something you are. It's something you are considered to be. We are called people who are justified. Let me give you an illustration of this. There's going to be a couple more illustrations, probably the normal for this sermon, because this is a huge concept, and I want to make sure it's very clear. If you've ever been to a conference or if you've ever been to a sports meet with many, many competitors, Um, especially in a conference aspect is how I've been thinking about it recently. Uh, When you go in, you're usually given something like a name tag or like a lanyard, you know, one of those strings that has one of those kind of name tags on it. And that lanyard, that string that has an identification here, it usually identifies you in two ways. That lanyard has your name. It says, my name is Matthew. My name is Caden. My name is Maya. My name is Jaden. It has your personal name. And then it also has your status below that. It has your personal name and then your status. So at a conference, your status might be attendee or volunteer or or speaker. It explains the qualification you have to be a part of that conference. And at a sports meet, it's it's even simpler. If you were a sports participant, you might say, uh, here's my name. My name is Elijah and my competitor, I'm a participant in tennis. Or if you're Josiah, it says, my name is Josiah, and I'm a competitor in the 400-meter race. And that fact that you have the status of competitor is the qualification for you to enter into that group. Now, the reality is when we think of justification as a part of salvation, God is explaining it in similar terms in this way. God is setting up a place in heaven for his people to come into. And though those people are all different, they all have their own names, they all have the same status. Their status is loyal lover of God. Their status is innocent of sin. Their status says righteous in all of their ways. These are the qualifications by which they have entered into God's presence for eternity. And all of that fits under the banner of justified. God has determined that those qualifications are legitimate so that they might have that status. And as we look at our text today, it has to explain how it is that we are justified to have that status. So with that understanding of justification, let's look at the text and let's determine how this is taking place. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, it's one single verse in the Bible in the New Testament that explains this concept very succinctly. Galatians 2.16 says this, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, 
no one will be justified. Now, this one verse explains all of faith alone in a very easy to comprehend way. It actually repeats the same sort of idea about three times. But I think the way that will help us understand it is that this verse explains justification through three verbs, three action words. And those three verbs kind of explain the process by which we can think about justification as a status that we can receive. And those three verbs are to know, to believe, and to be. To know, to believe, and to be. So I simply just want to walk through those three verbs that will help us kind of explain justification step by step. And so the first one of those verbs is to know. In order to be justified, you need to know. Galatians 2.16 begins by saying, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, all he wants to do is in one very quick sentence, say this, there's a way not to be justified and there's a way to be justified. There are many, many man-made ways, man-made conceptions that people think you can be justified, but they don't work. But there is a way to be justified and God is explaining it here. But first he explains here that there's a way not to be justified, which is called works of the law. Now, you guys would know this, but there's big debates out between scholars and theologians about what works of the law really means. And many people right now are getting into big discussions that works of the law has to mean all of the things in Leviticus. If you've ever went through Leviticus, you might think it's a really hard book to read because it's just talking about all of these things that we don't do anymore for some reason. And many people think works of the law are just all that stuff, all the things the Israelites had to do. But the whole point of the law in the Old Testament, in a nutshell, was to reveal to man that there's no way that they can perfectly keep God's commandments. If God tells them to go right, they're going to go left. If he tells them to go north, they're going to go south. And what the law is really revealing is that people are accountable to God to be morally good. Now, if we could take all that and just put it in a real-life conversation. Let's imagine Paul was talking to an actual Galatian in a regular conversation. This verse is basically getting at the point that Paul would talk to that Galatian and he would ask, how do you think you're going to be right with God? If you died right now and you woke up and you were before God and heaven and hell were before you and and you had to say, how am I okay to be with you forever? What would you say? And the Galatian person thinks about it for a second. They say, you know what? I'm going to tell God that I did my best to be a good person. I did everything that I think I could do. I I did pretty well. I was a good person. I think that would make me right with God. And Paul would very sadly shake his head and say, nope, not going to work. And this Galatian might be confused and say, but nobody's perfect. That doesn't make sense. I've, I've done good. Why won't that work? Why won't my works, all of my stuff, all of the good things that I've done, why isn't that enough? And if I could try and sum it up in a sentence, why it's not enough, I think Paul would respond like this. He would say, because your good isn't actually good, and all your good isn't good enough. Let me say that again. Paul would tell the Galatian, because your good isn't actually good, and all your good isn't good enough. Now, if we were to go back for a second and think about 
last week's sermon on grace alone, there are two words that I tried to help you guys understand that define what it means to be a sinner. The first was that we're unresponsive, right? That we're dead in our sins. So we don't begin or initiate this relationship with God, right? We're unresponsive. And then the other word was unlovely. We, we don't have the kind of makeup, we don't have the kind of beauty that would move God's affections that he would want to save us because our sin makes us unlovely. We're unresponsive and we're unlovely. What Paul is talking about here is basically just adding one more word onto sinner, which is the word unable. We are unresponsive, we are unlovely, and we are unable to be right with God. There's a very helpful Old Testament verse that summarizes this point. It's Isaiah 64, 6. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our unrighteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The point that Isaiah was trying to make to the Israelites of his day, the Israelites who thought they were right with God because they were Israelites, they were God's people. The point Isaiah was trying to make to them was that it's impossible for unlovely people to present works that will look lovely to God. It is absolutely impossible because everything that we give God reminds God of who we really are. Let me give you an illustration that was told to me in seminary that was particularly helpful. It's going to seem ridiculous, but I promise that it should kind of make a little bit of clarity of the situation. Imagine that the thing you want most in this life is a Ferrari. Now, all of you guys I know have very different personalities, so you can sub in Ferrari for whatever you want. But whatever you sub in for Ferrari, imagine it's very expensive. So in this situation, if you wanted a Ferrari, let's say you go to the dealer and you say, show me your Ferraris. And he shows you the nicest Ferrari in the car dealership. He shows you that the wheels there are the shiniest and most well-developed wheels there so that they'll almost never run out of treading. He shows you that it's got the exact color that you want and the sheen on it is perfect. There's not a scratch on the car. He shows you that the windows are pretty much bulletproof and you don't think you're taking heavy fire anytime soon, but you're like, that's pretty cool. And the gas mileage is amazing. It takes a really long time for it to run out of gas. And you look at that car and you're like, that is the car I want more than anything else in this world. And so he says, okay, the price of this Ferrari is $300,000. Now imagine you go to your car and you say, I'll be right back. And you open your trunk. And the only thing in your trunk is a change of clothes that you had just worked out in. Your sweaty, very not smelling good clothes. And you pick up your clothes and you come before the car man at the car dealership and you throw them on you down. You said, there it is. That is how I shall pay for this Ferrari. If you were the dude at the car dealership, how absolutely ridiculous would you find that offer? He said, the cost is $300,000 and you gave me your sweaty clothes. That is like unbelievers That is like any sinner in the world bringing their good works to God. It is bringing your sweaty, polluted garments. That's exactly the term that Isaiah uses. Your garments that, to put it very mildly, smell like you. Your stuff and your works, what you offer to God, it has you all over it. And God can smell it on it from a mile away. 
no matter what we offer, it reminds God that we are sinners. No matter how good it is, there's something wrong with it. And what's wrong with it is the same thing wrong with us, which is that it has sin on it. Last week for small group, I was with the junior high boys and I asked them, what is the definition of a good work? And they thought about it for a while, but one of the guys got it exactly right. He said, a good work is something that you did for God's glory. And that's exactly right. A good work is what God commands us to do. And we did it because we wanted to please God. But the problem is that if we are sinners, our natural state is that we never, ever want to do anything for God's glory. And that makes us, the Bible calls us, unrighteous people. King Solomon, arguably the wisest person who ever lived, himself tried to use his wisdom and his knowledge to determine what the purpose of life was. And so he spent most of his life observing the world to determine what life is all about. And he would have interacted with a lot of people in his lifetime being the king of Israel. And when he observed Israel that he ruled over, he came to this conclusion. In Ecclesiastes 7.20, he wrote down this verse. He said, surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and who never sins. In Psalm chapter 14, verse 1 and 2, that same kind of statement is explained as if God himself were saying it in the first person. Psalm 14, 1 to 2 says that the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt and there is none who does good, not even one. And that verse Paul thought was especially helpful. And so Paul, in his context, looking at Greek people who allowed themselves to get to all kinds of sin, and also Jewish people who were hiding their sin, to both of them, he thought of Psalm 14, and he repeated that verse to them in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. And Paul told the people in Rome that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. Now, again, if you go back to the conversation between Paul and the Galatian, he might say that this is ridiculous because, yes, many of my good works have sinned, but surely I've done some things for God's glory. Surely I've done some things that have been genuinely honest and honestly helpful, and I didn't have ulterior motives. I really tried to do it for the right reasons. And if Paul were to humor that guy for a second, he might tell him, that's not God's standard. God's standard isn't you doing some things right. God's standard is not doing most things right. God's standard of who will be with him for eternity is perfection. That you must be perfectly righteous. Jesus himself said it in the Sermon on the Mount when he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect problem is we know that we are not only sinners and unrighteous people, but that God's perfect standard is something we fall short of every single day. That's why Romans 3.23 says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If God is really going to have this perfect world, why would he ruin that perfect world by inviting people like us, people who are imperfect? 
And every single one of us have proved that we are sinners because sin in itself, like we talked about last week, is missing the mark. Sin isn't just doing stuff. Sin is not doing stuff, namely not doing enough for God's glory. And that is the point that Paul is making in Galatians 2.16 when he says, no one will be justified by their works. The Bible makes it clear time and time again that the clear way that we won't be declared righteous by God is through things we do. Because we don't do enough and we never do enough for the right reasons. That's how we're not justified. But notice very clearly there is a way to be justified. Hope is not lost. And he says it multiple times in this passage by saying this. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Justification is found in believing and believing in Jesus Christ. That's the second word we're going to look at. You have to know and you have to secondly believe. You have to believe, knowing and believing. Now, if you look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, you'll notice this very interesting little detail between the words know and believe. And the kind of little interesting thing you'll notice if you look at it in your Bibles right now is that they're spelled differently. It's kind of a weird thing to point out, right? That they're spelled differently. You'll notice no is spelled K-N-O-W and believe is spelled B-E-L-I-E-V-E. It's kind of interesting, right? Pretty obvious. You know why they're spelled differently? It's because they're different words. Paul is making a very, very clear division that knowing is one thing and believing is another thing. There's a difference between having information and applying that information in your life, interacting with it in a certain way that transforms your life. Knowing means learning details. Believing something means living out those details. Knowing means that your thinking might be changed. But believing means that your behavior is subsequently changed. Knowing means you go to your room and you start learning and reading the Bible. But believing that information means you don't just go to the Bible, you go to Christ. And you go directly to Christ in faith and you ask for forgiveness. The reality is that if you know you're a sinner, that is the first step. But if you believe you are a sinner, something breaks in your heart. Something changes and the reality of the consequences of your sin becomes frightening. It's like I explained to you guys last week as a six-year-old when I almost drowned. There's something about recognizing your incapability by which you reach out and you look for help. And the help is clearly found in God. There's a very interesting passage of scripture in Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 14. You don't need to go there. I'll read it for you. But in Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 14, Christ himself explains a parable about two men who wanted to be justified before God. Neither one in their life were good men. One was a Pharisee who publicly looked good. But if you read the gospels, you know that Pharisees were hiding something. They wanted to be religious on the outside, but God called them whitewashed tombs. Because they looked good on the outside, but inside they were dead like every other sinner. But the other man wasn't good either. He was a tax collector. 
It was a man who collected money from his own people, from Jewish people, and they used it to fund the Roman army, army that was the dictator, the controller over them. But Christ makes an interesting point when he talks about both of these men wanting to be justified before God. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 14 says this. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, speaking of the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You can know you're a sinner, but never act or respond to Christ like you're a sinner. This tax collector knew he was a sinner, and the first thing that that knowledge did, the way that turned from information to belief, was going to God and asking for mercy because he knows he needs it. Why do we go to Christ? When we go to Christ in prayer, we ask for many things. We ask for future plans. We ask for good grace. We ask for a healthy future, a healthy life, for other people we know to know Christ. These are all wonderful things. But when's the last time you prayed to Christ to forgive you of your sin? When's the last time you did that like your life depended on it? Have you ever thought that way? Because that's step one. And we actually know even more specifically, like he is saying, it's not just belief in God, but belief in Jesus Christ specifically. There is something that the sinner knows when they go to God. They know that somehow, some way, even though they don't know the exact method or exactly how it is that they're saved through Christ, they know they are saved by Christ. And they know that if they just read why Christ came in the first place. Luke chapter 5, verse 32. One of my favorite verses in all of the Gospels. Luke chapter 5, verse 32. Christ himself says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If your works are going to save you, if you're going to consider yourself a righteous person, Jesus didn't come for you. And the reality is that he is good to us in explaining that he didn't come for us because we aren't the people who think we need salvation, though we are. But the people who are actually saved, who experience salvation, are people who set aside everything they've done because they know it is useless before God. And it's the people who instead turn to Christ and say, I don't exactly know how, and I know I will pursue the means of determining how it is that you saved me. But all I know right now is that Jesus Christ, you saved me not my own works. That was the attitude of the apostle Paul when he was waiting to die in jail. In the book of Philippians, as we've actually studied before with Mr. Francis and has been referenced in a couple of sermons uh, since I've been here this year, 
The book of Philippians takes place when Paul, our same speaker as in Galatians, is waiting to die in prison. He's most likely going to go into the arena and die some very, very terrible death that the Romans were entertained by. And because he is on death's doorstep, he is considering how it is that he would be right with God. And he goes in Philippians 3 and starts listing out all of the ways that he might be right with God. He says he had done the right things, that he was part of the right people, he had the right attitude. By Paul's estimation, which is an honest estimation of himself, he might be the righteous person that he knew. He might even be the most righteous person on earth. But that was all external. Philippians 3, even Paul recognizes this. And when he looks at everything he's done and he considers if God will justify him for it, if God will say, you are worthy to enter my presence, Paul knows that the answer to that is absolutely not. None of that will justify me. And so he explains why in Philippians chapter three, verse seven to verse nine, Paul says this, whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul knows that everything that he could offer as a righteous human being is rubbish, it's actually such a similar word to what Isaiah was talking about when he said his good works were a polluted garment. It means absolutely nothing. It's not enough, and it never will be enough. But he considers something. He considers Christ, and when he considers Christ, he sees the power of Christ, and he sees the love of Christ, and he sees the reasons why he would want to have a relationship with Christ, but he also sees something more than that. He sees the perfect, righteous life of Christ. He knows that Christ never, ever sinned. He knows that Christ never, ever did wrong. He knows that everything Christ ever did was to please God with no ulterior motives, ever. And Paul knows that there was one man who walked the earth who God would look at his life and say, that man can enter my presence. One man, Jesus Christ. And Paul considers this. If there is any way that God could look at me and see the righteousness of Christ instead of my life and all the wrong I've done, if he could look at me and see Christ, then I could be right before God. And that's actually exactly the reality that Paul points to in Galatians 2.16. Look at the text with me again. And don't miss this because it's, it's small. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus, listen to this, in order to be justified by faith in Christ. Two letters, B-E. One word, be. It's very small and it's very insignificant, but it's making a profound point. 
If you believe in Christ, something happens more than just a relationship. What happens is God looks at you and you aren't considered justified, but you are justified. A new reality hits home for you in this B. As soon as you believe in Jesus Christ, you recognize your incapability to be perfect before God and you reach out to Christ. Help immediately comes in the one word be, as in being, as in are. You believe in Christ, you are considered righteous. What happens in that in order to be is that through belief, you enter into a system that God has created by which he can be a good and righteous judge of sin, but you can still be saved. It is one in which you enter into the courtroom of God, and you know that God would never, ever allow any sin to go past his gaze without being punished. You enter that courtroom, and you know that judge, and somehow... God has created a righteous system without breaking any laws by which you leave that courtroom forgiven of your sins and considered righteous so you may enter his presence eternally. This is what C.H. Spurgeon said about this, someone who I've quoted before. Josh, Pastor Josh on Sunday has quoted multiple times and Spurgeon explained this system as well. He said that God has devised ways and means of making the ungodly man to stand justly accepted before him. He has set up a system by which with perfect justice, he can treat the guilty as if he had been all his life free from offense. And he can treat him as if he were wholly free from sin. God justifies the ungodly. How is it that believing in Christ could be better than doing good all my life? How is it that by believing in Christ, I enter into a system where suddenly God thinks of me not as a sinner, but as a righteous person? And if there's one verse that I can give to you to explain that entire thing, it's this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, which says this, For your sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a lot of pronouns there, a lot of he's, it's. And so because of that, let me read you that verse again, removing the pronouns and putting in the proper names. This is how 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 reads. For the sake of sinners, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Christ sinners might become the righteousness of God. You can think of faith as appropriately as I can as a kind of exchange. Faith creates a kind of bridge by which two things happen. Through the bridge of faith, Christ comes and takes something from you. And by that same bridge of faith, something is given to you. A great exchange takes place through faith. Through believing in Christ, what happens is through that bridge, Christ comes across the bridge and he takes all of your sin. Not most of your sin, not some of your sin, but every single sin you have, are, and will ever commit. Every single one. 
And he comes across the bridge, takes that sin, and he brings it with him onto the cross. And as he nails himself and your sin to the cross, the father pours out his wrath in punishment on Christ. And as that happens, the courtroom document that has every single sin you have ever committed is wiped clean. And not a single thing that you have ever done remains on that record. You are sinless. But something more happens as well. When Christ crosses the bridge through believing in him, he doesn't just take your sin. He also leaves something with you. He leaves his righteousness. He leaves his perfect life. And so because of that exchange, because he has taken your sin and given you righteousness, God no longer looks at you as someone who's only free from sin, which you are. He also looks at you as having always done everything right. And that's because the right and perfect life of Christ has now been put upon you as if you had lived Christ's life. All of that happens through real belief in Christ. That is what it means to be justified by God. That through believing in Christ, trusting that he is the only way to be right with God, he enters into the system with you through faith by which he takes your sin, gives you his righteousness, and now God can look at you and still be a just God and say, this one is righteous and free from sin. And though this is, as the Reformation people used to say, at once a sinner and righteous, this sinner can now enter my presence for eternity. One pastor said it this way, there is only one man's works who are enough, and it is him who said it is finished. The reality is that we are actually saved by works. We are actually saved by works, but not your works and not my works. We are saved by works, but the works of Christ. And those works are considered yours for free. That is something that I think every single one of you could maybe explain. But if there's a single application I can leave you today, there's only one. It's this. You have to believe it. That tunnel doesn't just happen because of an explanation that you can give. It doesn't happen because you can know this knowledge. It has to be something that you actually recognize in your heart. It needs to be you drifting in a storm at sea, recognizing that there is one lifeboat. And on that lifeboat is Jesus Christ. And he has come to you to take you out of the water and leave you not stranded and helpless, but lead you rather into eternal life with him. I tried to explain to you guys last time that this is supposed to be a message that seems too good to be true, but as you open up the words of scripture, you realize that God is explaining how all of history has led to this moment. This moment where Jesus Christ offers himself willingly on the cross to take your sin and his entire life of righteousness is now given to you, not just as an example, but as your clothing, the same clothing, the spotless clothing that you walk into heaven's gates with and you will have for eternity. The only thing I have to say for you today is the only way you might be saved is not through your works. It is through 
faith in Jesus Christ. And by faith, you enter into a system by which you are declared righteous by God. And it is freely given to you. The response of all of us should be to be overwhelmed by this and to reach out to Christ in faith. And it is the only way to be saved. And it is very much given to you because God loves sinners. Let's pray. Father, it is sometimes so difficult to approach you in prayer. We take it so generically. We take it so not seriously because we just assume that prayer is something you've just kind of given to us. But really prayer is the reality that we are connected with you. And we know if you truly hear us, it's not because we are good people. We are not good people, nor in this life will we ever be perfect people. But because of the righteous work of your son, we might pray to you that you would hear us in this life. You may justify us as righteous people because you sent your son for this very purpose, to make sick people well, to make ungodly people godly, to make blind men see and lame men walk, and people who could never, ever be justified to be perfectly justified in your sight. Would we need your son Christ? We have no hope, but we do have your son Christ, so we do have hope. Lord, I pray for all of us that anyone here, any student who does not understand how this works or would feel that this is so too good to be true would be overwhelmed with the fact that you have set all of this up because you want to display your glory in us, because it glorifies you to see sinners awakened by your love and by the realization that their sins are wiped clean and they are declared perfectly righteous before you. That is supposed to be overwhelming, but it is supposed to move us to transform our lives into something so much more than people who just give in to our own desires. It makes us be joyful slaves of you. People who want nothing more than to spend their whole lives worshiping you. And when we die, we have full confidence that we will spend our whole lives without sin and perfectly enjoy because we will be united with you, the light of the world and life itself. We were created for this purpose and each one of us have fallen away from this purpose, Lord. So awaken us to this reality that we would approach you humbly and repentant, knowing that we are the sinner. We would hold nothing back. We would be repentant of all of our sins, knowing that every single one of them was deleted from your record, punished by Christ, and replaced with his perfect life. Let us accept that wholeheartedly. And we pray all of this in your righteous name. Amen. Thank you guys for listening. I know that that was somewhat technical, uh, but my goal is that this place can be somewhere where we can help you understand those kinds of things because learning Christianity is somewhat akin to learning a new language. There's new words and new concepts and you actually receive so much more joy in Christ and joy in being a believer when you understand those words and those concepts. So if you have any questions, come to me. Uh, like I'm mentioning every week, we have a Q&A that we're going to do at the end of this series. So next week we're doing Christ alone. The week after we're doing God's glory alone. 
And then the week after that, uh, Pastor Isaiah and Pastor Josh are both going to come and just answer your questions about this series, about other Christian questions you have. Just tell me, uh, tell your, uh, your, your uh, small group leaders to tell me as well, uh, or just email if, if that works better for you. Um, other than that, I just have uh, one other announcement for you guys to uh, look forward to. After the Q&A, uh, Mr. Uh, Francis is going to be speaking to us. And then the week after that, uh, Mr. Sam is going to be speaking to us. And that's actually going to be Sam's last night here. So some of you guys who are in junior high boys actually know, um, but Mr. Sam has an opportunity. He can explain more fully as well, but uh, he actually has an opportunity for his family to go back where he's from in Modesto, and he's going to uh, go there to serve in a church plant, um, I believe as, as a layman, but basically to just help them support the community and to be a good evangelist and use his life for God's glory in that way. So um, this is his uh, last night sitting here, but then he's going to come back on June 18th, and then he's going he's gonna to speak. Um, he'll, he'll be sharing from his heart just... Um, just personal words for you guys that uh, he, he has been thinking about and will continue to be thinking about for you guys. Um, so make sure before tonight that you just go and talk to him and appreciate him and love him. You'll have another chance, but I would encourage you to do it twice. Um, most of you guys know Sam has been here for a while and has served so faithfully, uh, especially with you junior high boys. And you guys got to hear from him about this last week. So make sure you appreciate him and we're going to have a good time with him on June 18th as well. But uh, make sure you pray for him and pray for his family, for Amber and for the boys to um, just be um, good and faithful uh, disciples of Christ in Modesto. So I just wanted to let you guys that know that so you can go and uh, reach out to him, uh, however it is that you want to do that. Um, with that, we're going to now go to uh, our small groups. So you guys can break off and then take as long as you need, and then we'll meet back here after in fellowship. Thank you. 